You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is that getting older may be the key to happiness. A recent study at the University of Chicago found that happiness increases incrementally from 65 to 80 years old. And some studies show that people are happier in their 80s than they were in their 20s. Uh, The scientists who do these studies believe that our toolbox of social and emotional instincts that are built on experience are the key to being happy later in life, which is kind of a cool perspective on it. So if you're 20 and miserable, just think it won't suck nearly as bad when you're 80, right? (laughs) I'll tell you when I'm 80, all right? What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's guest is a friend, a guy I first met, geez, probably six, seven years ago over, over breakfast. I think we had some omelets in Mountain View, California. And this is none other than Aubrey de Grey. He's probably the most famous anti-aging guy out there, a biomedical gerontologist focused on regenerative medicine. He's the editor-in-chief of Rejuvenation Research and a fellow of the Gerontological Society of America, the American Aging Association, and the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. Uh, Definitely qualifies as a biohacker by any measure. And 
the the owner of the single coolest beard I've ever seen. Uh, Aubrey, <laughs> welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Your work on aging has been some of the most uh, most seminal work out there where you talk about these five big causes of aging and what we could potentially do about them. What's your definition of aging today, like, like for listeners? Well, first of all, let me correct you. It's actually seven causes. Seven? Not- uh, I, forgetfulness was one of those things I have. <laughs> Um, so, uh, what's the definition of aging? It's actually a really simple definition. Aging is simply the accumulation of damage in the body that occurs, is created as a side effect, as a consequence of the body's normal operation. And the reason I like that definition is not just that it's mechanistic, but also that it emphasizes that aging is not really a phenomenon of biology. It's a phenomenon of physics. It's something that happens to any machine with moving parts, irrespective of whether that machine is alive. So it kind of demystifies aging. Aging is not a mystery. Aging is a simple thing. It's just the same in the human body, in, in essence, as it is in a car or an airplane. I absolutely love that definition. But you said something, you said in the normal course of living. What about damage that comes from things that are abnormal? Well, of course, the real question is, I mean, it's a very important question, which of those two actually contributes more to the rate at which damage accumulates? And many people would like to believe that we can very substantially reduce the rate at which damage accumulates by doing a particular thing in terms of lifestyle, whether it's yoga or meditation or supplements or exercise or more sex or less sex or whatever. Right. Uh, but unfortunately, the evidence seems to be that these things only play a relatively minor role when compared to the things that we all have to do. The single biggest problem, the single thing that drives the greatest amount of accumulation of damage is breathing. And breathing is pretty much non-negotiable, really. You know, so um, uh, you know the next one is probably uh, transport of sugar, because of course that controls things like you know uh, diabetes and so on. And again, you know, you've got to have sugar. You have you can have less sugar or more sugar, but you're still going to have a certain amount, and your blood sugar levels are going to are going to fluctuate a certain amount, and you're going to have the consequences of that. So this is the kind of reason why we've decided to kind of sidestep this question entirely and not focus on which are the major contributors to the creation of damage, but rather intervene one step later down the road and try to repair that damage after it's been created so that it doesn't really matter where it came from. That, that is a, an incredibly elegant answer that says, I, I don't care where it comes from, let's just fix it and, and make help the body repair itself. So... If you're looking at you know, maintaining your your race car, or let's just say that your commuting car, right? You you can change your oil and do your careful servicing intervals and drive it carefully and put the brakes on slowly and, and do everything. It it'll go an extra fifty thousand miles, or you could just replace the engine when it goes out, right? Yeah, yeah I wouldn't. Leave, I wouldn't quite like to say that it's an either or. I think uh, that yes. preventative, preventative maintenance comes in many forms, even for a relatively simple machine like a car. Uh, but we certainly do see, of course, by the existence of cars that are more than a hundred years old, that with sufficient work, with sufficiently comprehensive preventative maintenance, the healthy longevity of the machine can be extended arbitrarily long. These cars. Obviously, they were not designed to last 100 years. They were designed to last maybe 10 or 15 years. Uh, so we, we, we share that perspective. And I, 
I probably am a little more biased towards, well, let me see what I can do to extend the useful service life before I need to replace parts. And, and before you go on, I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. I absolutely think that lifestyle optimization is a good thing simply because, if uh, apart from anything else, we just don't have these therapies yet. <laughs> okay, we're in full agreement on that one. Like, I, I'd rather just eat cake all the time and just replace bad mitochondria that, that come as a result of that. I just don't know how yet, so I'm not going to eat the cake. Right? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, let, uh, let's talk about those seven things because uh, that is, and, and I say this having run the uh, the Silicon Valley Health Institute. You came and spoke there many years ago. In fact, that was actually the first time I met you. Now that I think about it, uh, before we had breakfast. But I, I look at what that, uh, what impact that's had on the world. That that perspective, and and I think it's actually been very far reaching in like the American Academy of Anti Aging Medicine. And all so walk me through the the seven things that are happening that are messing us up. So. Uh, first of all, I want to start by start that answer by emphasizing that there are actually far more than seven things. There are many, many, many things. The seven comes from the classification of those things. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I want to describe what the motivation for having a classification at all is. Motivation is to simplify the development, the specification of the fixes. So the idea of this classification is that for each of the categories, there is one generic approach to repair of that type of damage. There's something that may be differing in detail, in its details from one example within the category to another, but only in the details. So if we go through the categories, then the first one is loss of cells, simply cells dying and not being automatically replaced by the division of other cells. That sounds like a very broad category, and it is, but... The fact is, it's got a generic fix, and you all know what that fix is. It's stem cell therapy, putting cells in that will be able to divide and differentiate to replace the cells that the body is not replacing on its own. Have you had stem cells? Oh, certainly not yet. I mean, most stem cell therapies are at a relatively early stage of development at this point. And moreover, I'm only 53, and I'm doing pretty well. I'm not in danger of needing that kind of thing yet. Have, so, you, have you banked your stem cells? Okay, so uh, that's, okay, let me finish the first answer. Okay, okay. <laughs> got it. Sorry. So, 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 I mean, it's important to understand that there's always a trade-off between yeah. doing preventative maintenance early and doing it later but still early enough right. and benefiting in the latter case from the fact that the therapies have been improved in their comprehensiveness, their quality or whatever. Um, at the moment, I believe that I'm on that side of the curve, that I should not, because I'm doing pretty well for my age, um, be actually engaging in these therapies yet. Uh, uh, now, the separate question you asked about banking of stem cells, a very interesting one. So, of course, the idea of banking is that our stem cells deteriorate over time and that, therefore, if we were to try to do some kind of autologous stem cell therapy, in other words, therapy that involves taking our own cells and manipulating them in some way and then putting them back, then we wouldn't have starting cells to work from that were as good as the ones that we might have had at an earlier age. But we've got a couple of reasons why that has become less important, especially in regard to treatments for things about aging. The main reason is the development of induced pluripotent stem cells. The idea here, of course, is that we can now take cells that are not even stem cells at all, let alone primitive stem cells, and we can de-differentiate them back into a much more primitive state. And then 
redifferentiate them back out into whatever kind of state we would like so that they will be programmed into the appropriate form. They will then be our own, so they will not cause immune rejection or anything like that, but they will also be in a state that might not exist, or at least not to very high frequency, in the body before we start, and yet we still have them without having had to bank them. Uh, I am so intrigued at at that line of things, and I, I have done stem cell therapy. I, I'm going to talk about it at my conference. I, I just did a whole bunch of it. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm looking to, to only be 30 for the rest of my life, so we'll see how well that works. <laughs> I'm not 30, I'm 43, but... Uh, I'm, uh, I, I'm really intrigued at your comments, though, on, on, on where it'll be in 10 years. I have no idea, and hopefully what I'm doing now is beneficial, not, not damaging. It, it is a coin toss, I totally acknowledge that. All right, so cell loss, we can, we can deal with that with stem cells. And what was next on your list of seven? So, yeah, I could deal with the next two in uh, kind of jointly because okay. they're both the opposite of cell loss, having too many cells rather than too few. Okay. The reason there are two categories is because there are two different ways in which we end up having too many cells. And depending on which way, um, the, the, the therapy is different. So I'm coming back again to the reason for the classification. So one way is cells dividing when they're not supposed to. And that, of course, is more or less the definition of cancer. People have had plenty of ideas about how to deal with cancer, and um, you know, I think they're going pretty well at the moment, I guess, especially over the past few years. There's been a huge breakthroughs in cancer immunotherapy, which is looking very promising. We at Sense Research Foundation are pursuing a rather more ambitious and rather more innovative approach that involves controlling the ability of cells to extend their telomeres the ends of the chromosomes. This is not a new idea exactly. It's something that's been pursued by other groups, especially by a company named Geron. But we are proposing to do it in a much more comprehensive and hard-hitting kind of way, which we believe is necessary in order to really defeat cancer. It's, a, it's very elaborate, the approach that we're taking, and we hope to goodness that we're not actually going to need to do it because something else that's simpler will work well enough. But we're not betting on that, and that's why we are pursuing this very much more aggressive approach. So the second type of way in which you can have too many cells is when instead of cells dividing when they're not supposed to, instead they don't die when they are supposed to. That's a little more counterintuitive. Most people don't think in terms of cells having, you know, being supposed to die in any circumstance. But actually there are circumstances in the body where that's the case. The most important one, the most um, high profile one, so to speak, is the immune system, where, um, where you get an infection, uh, a very tiny proportion of our white blood cells expand like crazy, divide like crazy for a while in order to be populous enough to eliminate the infection. And when the infection is eliminated, they almost all die. And just a small residual population of what are called memory cells remain so as to be able to respond much more rapidly if you get the same infection again. And that's all very nice. But unfortunately, there are certain infections that hang around in the body. Rather than being completely eliminated, they become latent and they reactivate every so often. When that happens, you get the rather unfortunate um, cycling of the same cells expanding and dying and expanding and dying. And eventually, probably for um, anti-cancer reasons, the cells just stop. They just start refusing to go through that cycle. The problem is that they refuse at the expanded end. In other words, you end up with cells that should be responding to signals telling them to die, and they no longer do respond. So you have too many of them, and that inhibits the ability of other cells to divide to respond to new infections. Um, so that's an example where we need to get rid of cells. There are other examples of what I call death-resistant cells, 
Um, and the way to get rid of these things, there are p various people around, and it's quite high profile now, trying to use small molecules, pharmacological approaches to kill these cells. And there are some tentatively promising results. I'm certainly following that work very closely. Um, we're not sure that that's going to pan out to a sufficient extent to really solve the problem. And so we're pursuing a rather more... Um, Rationally designed, shall we say, uh, <laughs> approach involving genetics, involving suicide oh, genes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so there's something, there's something that's a relatively routine tool in the lab, but it's not really yet used in the clinic. It's called suicide gene therapy. And what that is, is you use engineered viruses, just as in any other gene therapy, to deliver DNA to cells. But w weirdly, what you deliver is a gene that kills the cells. And the reason this makes sense is because you arrange that the gene will not actually be expressed, the protein that's toxic will not be constructed, unless the cell gets into a particular state where you want it to die. So this is a way of essentially overriding the death resistance of these cells. Are, are they death resistant to just high amounts of oxidative stress? Like, couldn't you just... <clears throat> they are resistant to that, but... Okay. Most cells are resistant to that, fairly resistant anyway. The real problem is that these cells are resistant to signaling, to actually mm -hmm. the signals that would normally get them to turn on a, a cell suicide process of their own. They just, it doesn't, no, it no longer works. Okay. Um, All right, so three, that's three types of damage so three, far. Right. Um, so we've done, the three I've mentioned so far are all about cell number, having too few or too many. The rest is at the molecular level rather than the cellular level. And two of the remaining four are within the cell, inside the cell. First one is mitochondrial mutations. So the mitochondrion, of course, this, as they call the power plant of the cell, the place that does the chemistry of breathing. Um, the mitochondria has, have their own DNA, which, which is the only part of the cell that does, that's outside the nucleus. And that DNA, for various reasons, it accumulates mutations much faster, far faster than the nuclear DNA. So it's generally believed there's plenty of, albeit somewhat circumstantial evidence, and we don't really know the mechanism yet, but there's plenty of good evidence that the accumulation of mitochondrial mutations contributes to various aspects of aging. And um, so we'd like to fix that. And there are various approaches that people have proposed, but nothing's really panned out. Again, we're taking a very aggressive approach that's difficult to implement, but if we can, then it will really, really solve the problem. And in this case, that approach is what's called allotopic expression. What that means is we take copies of the mitochondrial DNA and we modify them and we put them into the nuclear DNA using gene therapy again. Um, the idea here is that if we, if we implement the correct modification, then those genes will express proteins that will be imported back into the mitochondria, even though the genes are in the nucleus. And the reason that's not completely out of, uh, out of the realm of plausibility is that mitochondria already do exactly this naturally with 99% of their proteins. There's only 30 proteins that are in the mitochondrial DNA. And so the idea is simply to co-opt the same mechanism that already exists for these thousand or more other proteins. Um, and it's going well. This is an idea that's been around for 30 odd years. And um, you know, progress has been rather fitful. We're a lot closer to getting it to work than anyone else has ever been. We've still got a little way to go, though. Aren't, are you a little concerned about those extra proteins made by nuclear DNA floating around in the cytoplasm because there's too many of them for the mitochondria to use? So sometimes it's important to implement some kind of copy control of these things of, 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 in any kind of genetic therapy. 
However, in general, that turns out to be not much of a problem because okay. the cell already has really good ways of implementing copy control itself, okay. of getting rid of surplus, super, superfluous proteins uh, and such like very automatically. We kind of don't need to worry about that too much. Cool. Um, all right. So um, the other type of damage inside the cell is much simpler to describe. It's just waste products. The cell constantly makes stuff that it doesn't actually use as kind of side products of things that it does need. And in general, those things are eliminated, either by being destroyed or by being excreted. Uh, so that's all great. But unfortunately, some things that are byproducts that are very slowly accumulating, they, 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 they are relatively rare byproducts, those things, simply the body doesn't care. You know, evolution doesn't care about these things because even if they're not destroyed or, or, ex, or, or, or excreted, um, they still don't accumulate to, a, to a, a sufficient amount to cause problems until old age. And as we all know, evolution doesn't care about old people. It only cares about people in terms of their reproduction. So we need to get rid of these, these various types of waste product that cause things like atherosclerosis and macular degeneration. And the way that we've approached that problem is by stealing some technology from an area of biology that isn't even biomedical, an area called bioremediation, which is used for environmental decontamination. It's used, so basically mm -hmm. what happens is that we find bacteria in the soil that are able to destroy a particular target compound mm -hmm. And then in bioremediation, what happens is they just grow a lot of those bacteria and shock them into the environment and the environment is decontaminated. Um, but in our case, we don't want to do that. What we do instead is we identify the genes that these bacteria have that give them the ability to break down the target compound. And then we incorporate those genes with suitable modification so that they still work into human cells so that those cells are able to destroy the, um, the, the stuff that's accumulating. So, in, for example, one thing we published a few years ago was that um, we could identify a gene that we could put into white blood cells, and those cells would then be able to break down oxidized cholesterol. Normal cholesterol is a perfectly essential molecule, and we'd better not destroy it too much, and that's why statins are not a very good um, drug against atherosclerosis. They work by, by reducing the amount of cholesterol that we make. But the real enemy in atherosclerosis is oxidized cholesterol. And so if we can directly eliminate that, rather than going after the cholesterol, the normal cholesterol, we've got a much better chance. And that's what we have shown at only at proof of concept level so far, but still that um, might be possible to do. All right, so I've got two types of damage left, and they are both molecular again. But in this case, rather than being inside the cell, they are outside the cell. They're in the spaces between cells. The first one is, again, waste products. They accumulate outside the cell too. And the reason why it's a separate category is the usual reason, namely that we're going to go after it in a different way than if molecular waste products inside the cell. So what we do in this case is we actually only need to relocate the stuff. Outside the cell, the natural machinery that exists for getting rid of stuff, for breaking it down and so on, is very primitive, very much more restricted and less powerful than anything that exists inside the cell, which means that stuff accumulates there, outside the cell, which would not accumulate. It would, it would be naturally destroyed if it were just inside the cell. So all we have to do is make that happen. 
And it turns out that that's not so hard. You can vaccinate against stuff that you want to get rid of, and the immune system will engulf it. It will get it inside the cell. And after that, it's pretty much toast. And so that's actually a very promising approach. And indeed, in the late 90s, it was first demonstrated to work in the case of one particular type of extracellular garbage, namely the amyloid that we see in Alzheimer's in the brain. It was demonstrated in mice, and that went through to clinical trials, and it's been shown it really works. It doesn't give much in the way of cognitive benefit, at least not to most patients, but that's simply because amyloid is only one component of Alzheimer's disease, so you need additional therapies too that have not yet developed. Um, but it, it works, and we've been pursuing uh, the same idea in the context of other types of garbage, also types of amyloid, but made of different types of protein and occurring in different parts of the body. We've specifically been going after something called transthyrosin amyloid, which accumulates in the heart, among other places, and causes a disease called senile cardiac amyloidosis. Um, that's a disease that has come very strongly to the attention of gerontologists recently because it's been determined that this disease is responsible for a huge proportion, maybe as much as half, of the deaths of really, really old people, people over 105, 110. Um, so, you know, we definitely need to fix that. And we have duly, indeed, been able to develop antibodies that seem to work, and we are hoping that these are going to go through the usual process and become, um, become therapy. The final um, type of damage is not... Uh, waste products, but rather a change in the structure of something in the um, space between cells. So there's this lattice of proteins called the extracellular matrix, which holds our cells together and gives our tissues their physical properties, their elasticity especially. And elasticity is really important in certain places in the body, such as the major arteries. So the reason why we actually, the main reason why we get high blood pressure in old age is because our major arteries get stiffer. They get less elastic, and that results in the need to push the blood harder, and it results in damage to the more fragile minor components of the circulatory system, the capillaries. So what we'd like to do is restore that elasticity. Um, and that sounds like it shouldn't be too hard, because we have a good understanding at this point at the molecular level. We understand that it's mainly caused by the reaction of amino acids in the extracellular matrix with sugar in the circulation. And sometimes those reactions cause new chemical bonds to be laid down that link between the proteins that make up the extracellular matrix. That's what essentially causes the stiffening that we see, the loss of elasticity. So if we could have drugs that would break those unwanted crosslinks, then we'd be golden. And it turns out that the structure of these crosslinks, the molecular nature of them, is very different from anything that the body lays down on purpose. So that means that in principle, a small molecule that attacks these things, even if it's not particularly specific, it will be specific enough not to have particular side effects. And that's the kind of thing we're looking for right now. Now, you said amino acids. Uh, I'm mostly familiar with advanced glycation end products. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, cool. So those though require relatively high levels of glucose. Uh, so is it an amino acid problem? Is it a sugar problem? And are there specific amino acids that you're more worried about than others? Well, first of all, yes, there are certainly specific amino acids. The links that we're talking about only form between lysine and arginine. But the amount of those those amino acids in the extracellular matrix is non-negotiable because right. they uh, protein. Need them. <laughs> when the proteins that are involved in actually constructing the extracellular matrix are what they are. You know, you're not going to be able to change those. 
Um, you can, of course, change the other side of the equation, as you mentioned, the level of sugar. But what's really important to understand is you can't change it all that much. We certainly, if we have too little glucose, too little sugar in the circulation, that's hypoglycemia, right? And it's bad for you. So we can't change it all that much. One thing we can change is the amount of fluctuation in the amount of sugar we have. And certainly the big problem with um, uh, insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes is exactly that, that our system for regulating sugar and getting rid of those spikes after, after eating as, um, as quickly as possible, that machinery starts to work progressively less well. Um, however, the point is that even in early life, even when there is perfect glycemic control, you've still got a respectable amount of sugar in the circulation because you need it. And so glycation is going to happen and um, advanced glycation end products, including these cross-links I'm talking about, are going to accumulate. And now there are some lifestyle factors in that one that, that seem to have a pretty big thing. Alcohol, when it breaks down in the liver, acetaldehyde, giant cross-link forming things. If someone drinks less, they're going to have less of this stuff until these small molecules come out that can break down the links. That seems like a pretty valid way of uh, preventing this one of the seven problems. So again, it's a matter of the contribution of these different mechanisms. Right. Yes, certain dietary components, depending on the specifics of how good your enzymes of particular types are, certain ones may make a difference to the level of certain drivers of uh, glycation in the circulation. And if you are, for example, particularly poorly equipped to eliminate alcohol from your bloodstream, uh, so that you have aldehydes, especially in the circulation, because you have good alcohol dehydrogenase, but you don't have good aldehyde dehydrogenase, then not only will you be prone to getting hangovers, you'll also be prone to um, having somewhat accelerated accumulation of glycation end products. Uh, but as I say, we've got to always have a sense of proportion about this and understand that the essential amount of glucose that you have in the circulation is actually the major contributor to the accumulation. Sugar and oxygen are toxic, uh, unquestionably, and we, we use them every day, so <laughs> let, let's repair that. I, I, full agreement on, on that one. Are there things we can do now that turn up our body's natural, uh, natural mechanisms for repairing these, these types of damage? There doesn't seem to be all that much that we can do now. I mean, certain things we know we can do that are the wrong things to do. We know that smoking is bad for you. We know that getting seriously <laughs> overweight is bad for you. You know, yeah. uh, you know, probably meditation is good for you insofar as it reduces stress yeah. hormones like cortisol, and those things definitely contribute to the rate of accumulation of various types of damage. But everything I'm saying here is what your mother told you. The question you're really asking is, <laughs> is there anything, is there any new news? Is there any new big, big um uh, discovery that helps us to do things that we couldn't do before? And the answer is no, there is not. At the moment, the best thing that you can do to live, to have a higher probability of living a longer amount of time in a healthy state is a very boring thing. It is give me large amounts of money so that we can get this research done faster and develop medicines that don't exist. All right, you hear that, everyone? Send your money to Aubrey. Uh, no joke. Uh, if you are in a position to make nonprofit donations and, and you like this aggressive hacking of aging, Aubrey is the man. Like, seriously, uh, the SENS Foundation is, is worthy of your support. It sounds like a joke, but... No, it's, it's not. It's the actual truth. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, I mean, anyone who's listened to this much of the interview understands, uh, I think the technical term is, you know your shit, <laughs> right? I, I don't know another way to put it. We so... Don't. We don't. Let's talk about cancer. 
I, so, I've been talking with Dominic D'Agostino, looking at, at the mitochondrial parts of cancer. I'm working on a book on mitochondria right now, uh, not a, a cancer-specific book. Uh, and we're seeing huge changes in when you use hyperbaric oxygen and, and you change the mitochondrial biogenesis, all these crazy things. What's your take on cancer? It seems like one of the things that's bad for aging, but g- give me the Aubrey de Grey cancer story. Well, okay, so first of all, I think that the appropriate way to classify cancer is to say that it is part of aging. It's a part of aging that is essentially antagonistic to the rest of aging in the sense that it is a phenomenon of excessive regeneration, if you like, of too much self-division, whereas most, where many other parts of aging are alleviated by more self-division, by more stem cells, things like that. Um, and a lot of the way that the body allows us to live as long as we do is because of finding a good trade-off between those two things, perhaps dampening down our ability to have good regeneration, especially late in life, as a way of also dampening down the ability of cancer cells to divide rapidly and kill us us that way instead. Um, So then I guess the real question is falls into two parts. There are various theories about how we might um, prevent cancer from getting going. Uh, in other words, you know, just lowering levels of mutants, things like that. And then there are various theories about how we might eliminate cancer or control cancer after it's got going, after it's been diagnosed and so on. We at Science Research Foundation, as with all the other aspects of age-related ill health, we tend to be focused on the latter, on rejuvenation and repair. Um, but our approach to combating cancer is a little, a little off, off the um, beaten track of most of what we do. Rather than simple repair, simple restoration of the structure of how the body was at an earlier age, we want instead to effectively put a time bomb into cells um, to, to, to eliminate their ability to divide indefinitely by eliminating the genetic capacity that they have to extend the ends of their chromosomes. The idea here is based on a discovery made way back in the early 1970s, or rather an insight that was made, which is that the way in which DNA replicates is, it's only been evolved once, all um, DNA polymerases have a lot in common, and it works in a way that is unable to replicate the ends of a linear DNA molecule completely. So whenever a cell divides and its DNA is replicated, the ends of the chromosomes get shorter. And that um, can't go on indefinitely. Eventually, things start going wrong. You know, of course, the obvious thing is you eventually start losing important genetic information. Actually, things go wrong much sooner than that. They go wrong when you've just lost a little bit of DNA because that impedes the ability of the cell to recognize the difference between, on the one hand, the end of the chromosome, and on the other hand, a broken chromosome, which happens all the time. Chromosomes have to be repaired after being broken constantly, and it'd be very bad if that same machinery recognized the ends of two chromosomes and thought they were a broken chromosome and joined them together end to end. Um, So, yeah, that's why these special sequences called telomeres exist at the end of the chromosome. And we are interested in ensuring that cells in cancer can't do what I just said, can't extend the... um, ends of the chromosomes and maintain their telomeres. If they can't, then eventually after dividing quite a bit, but but way before the cancer has grown big enough to kill us, 
then these things like joining chromosomes end to end will start happening and the cells will just divide themselves into oblivion. And so we're trying to stop that from happening. That's, that's such an elegant way of, of hacking the problem. You know, I'm a computer science guy and, and you look at how you disrupt systems and, and that is, is very different than, than the typical thing you hear. I, I am still intrigued by looking at the mitochondrial effects of cancer and, and I believe there's probably some hacks you can do to your mitochondrial uh, function which ought to have profound anti-cancer effects. But oh, yeah. people, have, people have been definitely pretty excited about, for example, um, stimulating mitochondrial activity as a way to, 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 to eliminate what's called the Warburg effect, the deliberate suppression of um, mitochondrial activity in cancer. But it's not yet clear that that would be a really decisive therapy. The thing is that cancers are awfully clever at uh, figuring out how to evade what we do. And in order to really get rid of a cancer, you have to do something that's so hard-hitting that even the trillion cells in a clinically relevant cancer um, you know, can't find a way out of it. So um, you know, if you look at the mitochondrial thing, for example, supposing you have some drug that stimulates mitochondrial function, the can- if the cancer can figure out how to um, break down the drug or to, um, mm. uh, you know, to, to stop the drug from getting into the cell in the first place or even just... Um, suppress mitochondrial activity harder so that the drug is essentially outrun. You know, all of these things are possible. Uh, it, definitely cancer will fight back. And I, I suspect that the final answer will be uh, met many different therapies all, all at once rather than just Sorry. one. Although it, the one you're talking about, if, if that works, that, that seems very decisive. <laughs> I, I, I like that. I like that thought. That's really cool. What are the other things besides cancer that are really big threats to longevity? Like, like if you're sitting down just doing a, an analysis, what, what would you think about? Well, the reason we have these seven categories is because they're all big threats. Oh, all yeah. of these types of damage accumulate independent, sem, semi-independently of each other. And therefore, they are all controlled by selective pressure, by evolution, at the, in the same way. They all have the same kind of essential deadline, the ill health and decline in performance and death that results. It would be, in other words, put it like this. They have different genes that are involved in combating them, in slowing down the rate at which they accumulate, which means, of course, that um, if you have you know, different sets of genes doing, uh, uh, combating different types of damage and one particular set of genes for one type of damage is unnecessarily effective so that the type of damage that it is protecting against would not kill us until we were age 500, whereas everything else is going to kill us at age 100, right? Then the genes in question, the genes that are controlling that type of damage, will not be selected for. So they will accumulate spontaneous mutations. I'm talking here in the germline, not in mm-hmm. the body, right? Um, and they will be- become... I mean, there will be mild mutations, so the genes will still be there and they'll still somewhat work, but they won't work as well as they used to. And eventually they will work only just well enough to defend against that type of damage for 100 years, same as all the other types of damaged genes. Right. So that's why all of these seven types of damage are equally important. I, I, uh, I, I love the way your mind works. You also talk about something called compression of morbidity, which is kind of a technical term, but uh, explain that for listeners. It, it's a cool idea. Okay, so first of all, I certainly don't talk about it because I don't think it's a cool idea. Um, okay, well, I, I do. So tell me well, all about it. So let me tell you why it's not a cool okay. idea. So first of all, let me tell you what it is. Uh, okay. The concept of compression of morbidity as a goal for biomedical gerontology, for doing something about aging, is that we've got this lifespan, and the last 
n years of the lifespan is unhealthy. Of course, exactly what n is depends on how you define unhealthy, uh, so that, how severe your ill health has to be. Um, but still, um, the idea is, you know, we, we have this certain amount of time. And so way back in about 1980, uh, a, a very um, prominent gerontologist said, well, okay, maybe the goal of gerontology needs to be to postpone the decline into ill health, in other words, extend the healthy longevity, and then we will have less time as in the unhealthy state. Sounds great. But of course, that concept relies, first of all, in terms of its actual plausibility, on the idea that there is something that kills us on schedule, irrespective of how <laughs> long we've been unhealthy, right? Um, that somehow if you delay the onset of ill health, then the ill health will become more severe at a more rapid rate than it would if you didn't delay it. And there's absolutely no reason whatsoever to think that that's the case, right? If you can delay yeah. health, the beginning of ill health, then, then it's probably going to proceed at the normal rate. Secondly, we have to ask ourselves, do we really want compression of morbidity? I mean, if you think about it, the, ex the ultimate limit of compressing morbidity is that you live to 100 in the same kind of mental and physical state that you were when you were 30, and then suddenly one day you don't wake up. Now, the thing is that, in general, if you ask people whether they want to die anytime really soon, then <laughs> their answer may depend substantially on how healthy they are, but it won't depend in the slightest on how long ago they were born. So if we want to be non-ageist about this, if we don't want to discriminate against people who were born a long time ago, then really we shouldn't be thinking in terms of compression or morbidity which, at all. We should only be thinking in terms of postponement of morbidity. Now, the final thing I want to say on this is the really good news, which is that when we postpone morbidity, we're giving people an extra amount of life, but then they're going to fall into ill health anyway, right? Except if before they fall into ill health, we postpone their morbidity again a little bit more, right? <laughs> if we can continue, if we can you know, find therapies that, let's say, keep people healthy for an extra five years, we've got five years to figure out what to do next. Now, five years isn't very long. So we might not figure it out. But supposing we have a bunch of therapies which we can apply that extend people's life by 30 years, healthy life, right? Yes. 30 years is a long time to figure out what to do next. And 30 years is the kind of amount of time that I believe the, the panel of therapies I've outlined to you earlier on in the interview um, are likely to give us, which means that I think that once we get them, we will have solved all the problems we need to solve. We will have... 30 years to figure out Sense 2.0, so to speak. And I don't know what Sense 2.0 is going to look like. I don't know exactly anyway. Sure. Fairly sure that we won't end up needing additional categories, but we may certainly end up needing additional um, examples within the categories. So there will be complications. But the thing is, 30 years is such a long time in any technology, including medicine, yeah. that we're very, very likely to get there in time. And, of course, after that, we may have got someone out to being... 150 before they get sick. That means we've got another 50 years or whatever to figure out. So this is the thing that I've called longevity escape velocity. And it's the thing that gets yeah. me into the most trouble with scientists because, of course, it's not science. This is technology I'm talking about. When you're talking science, you can have a sensible discussion about Sense 1.0, about the feasibility of these various things that we're already working on. But you can't have a discussion about Sense 2.0 because we don't know what it's going to look like. We don't even have a proposal yet. Yeah. From a scientific point of view, that means we shouldn't even talk about it. 
from a technological point of view, on the other hand, it means we should talk about it. We should be asking ourselves questions about the likelihood of delivering this rate of improvement. And we should answer those questions by looking at the kinds of rates at which other technologies have improved yeah. following the decisive initial breakthrough. Uh, I, I spend a good amount of time with Peter Diamandis and looking at exponential technologies. I, I think you do too, and or at least uh, you're you're connected through uh, uh, through the university, Singularity University, right? And uh, un, unquestionably, like I, I I look back, I'm the first person to to have done e-commerce, like the first product sold over the internet. Uh, I didn't plan it this way, but it was actually the the version 1.0 of the T-shirt I'm wearing now, uh, <laughs> with a, a trimethyl xanthine, i.e., caffeine molecule on it. And you look at like how the world's changed in 30 years, of course uh, stuff's going to happen. Uh, but the, the reason I was laughing so much about your, your brutal takedown of the compression morbidity is that I love to talk about the compression morbidity because people still think they're going to die. And getting them to go beyond that is just too much work. So I'm like, look, why don't you just live really, really well and of course you'll die, whatever. But the whole point is if you're still 30 when you're 80, you're probably not going to just drop dead, just like you said. But I find that the, the mental leap that it takes to get someone to think about that is just so much work that I'm happy to talk. Oh, of course you'll die. Of course you'll die. But shouldn't you just be young and ass-kicking till then? And to be honest, okay. Dave, I think you're right. I think <laughs> that it's vital to convince people to support this work. And I'm perfectly fine convincing them by arguments that I don't believe. But <laughs> the thing is that I'm not very good at delivering arguments that I don't believe. <laughs> So I'd rather you did it instead. And well, I, I, I appreciate the way you think because you're, you're, you're exactly right. If you're really 30 when you're 80, why would you die? Like, it, it's so obvious. But, okay. Uh, so, so we actually do agree there, and, uh, and it, it's, it's actually really humorous to me. From, from a rhetorical point of view, I think it's vital. I'm very good at what I do, but I only do what I do. Yeah, and yeah. So I think we need a variety, wide variety of voices out there explaining this concept and the importance of doing something about aging to a wide audience so that you know, one of us will actually communicate effectively to these people. Uh, I, uh, uh, I, I think you should keep doing what you're doing because it's working pretty well from, from where I sit. Uh, let's talk about the other big question that, that comes up. And I, I've been kind of public saying, look, I, I think 180 is a reasonable age for me to live. And, and that's because I started out with crappy mitochondria. I used to be obese. Like I have all sorts of risk factors. But I'm like, I, I think I can pull off 180. And maybe I'm wrong, in which case I'll be dead and it's okay. So people say what it, it, that either that's unnatural or it's an ethical thing. Like, like I'm somehow stealing from someone else. What's your take on the ethics of immortality? I think that people's concern about the ethical ambiguity of this kind of work arises entirely from the clinging to a completely obvious misconception about the relationship between aging on the one hand and the diseases of aging on the other hand. Basically, people have this idea in their heads that is extraordinarily entrenched that there is a difference, that there's aging itself which is kind of not a disease or not like a disease, and then there are the diseases. And this is the underpinning of a huge amount of problem. First of all, it's a huge amount of medical problem because people <laughs> go about trying to fix the diseases of old age, like Alzheimer's, as if they were infections, you know, as if they could be eliminated from the body without eliminating aging itself, which is nonsense. Um, and, that's, that's, and billions and billions of dollars is spent in geriatric medicine and medical research trying to do that, which is never going to work. Right. Um, the second problem is that people are so confused about whether aging is a medical problem at all 
that they are confused about whether it would be a good idea to fix it. You know, you don't get people, you don't get people saying, asking whether there's any kind of ethical ambiguity about whether we should do anything about Alzheimer's disease. People are pretty unanimous that Alzheimer's disease is a uniformly bad thing, right? Mm-hmm. But so if people understood that it's all part and parcel of the same phenomenon, then you wouldn't get this bullshit. Being, being spouted about whether it would be a good idea to, you know, to be able. I mean, ultimately, it all comes down to remembering that longevity is not what we work on. Longevity is purely a side effect of what we work on. And what we work on is a completely ethically unambiguous phenomenon, namely ill health. We want to get rid of ill health. And there will be this side effect of extra longevity on average, because let's face it, what most people die of is being sick. Right? <laughs> and, and um, you know, we're not working on stopping being people from being hit by trucks. So I guess we are pretty happy that some people are working on that. Uh, you know, that's all. Uh, that, that is so well said. All right, assuming that, that the worst comes to worst, you actually do die, are you going to freeze your body? I am signed up with Alcor. Mm-hmm. I believe that cryonics is an extremely feasible concept. And furthermore, that the quality of cryopreservation is improving rapidly. I keep my finger very much on the pulse of research in that area. And I think that there's a high probability that by the time I get old enough to get uh, to have a high risk of death, even in the absence of any advances in the kind of work that Sensory Research Foundation does, that cryonics will, uh, cryopreservation will be really good. The damage done by the cryopreservation process will be very minimal, which means that the likelihood of someone who is cryopreserved very shortly after their heart stops is uh, being being revivable is quite high. I uh, I'm not sold on that on that theory yet, but I'm I'm open to it. I have lots of friends who uh, who have the bracelet and are are planning to freeze their head or freeze their body. I, the only reason to be sold on it is if you understand the details of the technology. Certainly, it's very straightforward to say, well, this sounds far too difficult. But one just has to look at what's possible and what's looking like it will be possible soon, and that's how to make that decision. Oh, I, I'm not worried about the technology at all, and just not certain that restarting the hardware after it stops, that the operating system and the, the things will still be there. Oh, uh, well, right. hang on, hang on. I can help you there very quickly. Okay. So when, for example, someone falls through ice on a frozen lake and their mm-hmm. heart stops and their brain stops as well for maybe an hour, you know, that right. has happened many times, uh, that they get revived and they don't even have any ill effects, let alone anything, you know. So, you know, these are the kinds right. of... There is evidence, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I, I I hear you there, uh, and I I just wonder what the time limit on that is. It, it's you know if there's a, a a wavering in the power supply on your computer, yeah, your hard drive is fine, but man, what what was stored in memory, gone. And so it 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 feels like there's some core assumptions about about the 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 session state that I'm not sure we can restore a session state after a long freeze. And I can't I don't have evidence either way. I'm just like I, that's a big assumption you have to make before you go to all the rigmarole of deciding to freeze yourself. So oh, it, well, it's, even that, even that yeah. no, I'm not gonna let you get away with this. So I, I'm interested, yeah. <laughs> so we do know for an absolute uh-huh. fact that yeah. once you are down at minus 196 degrees centigrade, nothing happens. Absolutely nothing happens. If you can take someone down there and get them back immediately and they and they still work then for absolute sure and certain, you can take them back down there and leave them there for a thousand years and bring them back and that will still work just as well. The time spent at the low temperature is absolutely time that doesn't count. 
we know that for a, for a fact. That, I, I definitely understand uh, that that part of it. What I'm uh, what I'm concerned about there is the fact that you died before they took you down to that temperature. If I was going to do it, I, I, I would want to be alive when they took me down there. That that right. would be the interesting thing. Well, right. I mean, of course, people are very. Uh, you're not the only one who thinks that way. People yeah. have been trying to make that happen for quite some time. At the moment, it's actually there are a number of cryopreserved people who somewhat hastened their own death by essentially starving and uh, essentially refusing food and drink, um, food and water, and it doesn't take very long, you know. Yeah. So that w- that's a way, for example, to make sure that if you have some progressive neurodegenerative disease, then that doesn't destroy your brain before your heart stopped. But you've always got to remember that death is not what most people think it is. Most people think of death as this kind of instantaneous pro- uh, uh, phenomenon that happens at a particular point. But, of course, that point, the medical definition of that point, has changed over the years because mm-hmm. it's a rather embarrassing frequency of cases where people have been declared dead and they've woken up again, right? Um, and, of course, the reason for this is that we actually know, as biologists and medics, that death is not an instantaneous process. The dis- definition of it, of it as an instantaneous process is purely a sociological convenience because we don't like to have people be kind of half dead. We prefer people to be alive, <laughs> dead, nothing in between. But that's actually not biologically sensible. Uh, full agreement, death is not a binary thing. Uh, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's a, there's a curve to it. I, I absolutely agree. Uh, I, I may be convinced one way or the other, I'd say I'm, I'm on the fence about that one. And your arguments have a lot of merit, un- unquestionably. Now, we're coming up on uh, on the end of the show. I, I could talk with you for, for days just for fun, obviously. I'm looking at all the things I, I, I want to ask you. Let's talk about specific goals that you have with SENS in the next five to ten year time frame. Like, like what, what are we going to see pretty soon here? On a five or ten year time frame, our key goal is something that I've always called robust mass rejuvenation. We are not so much focused on getting things into human clinical trials, though, of course, the, anything that did get that far would be a bonus. Um, really, our focus is on getting everything working together in mice. We believe that it's a realistic goal to be able to do that within six or eight years at this point. Um, wow. It might take longer. But uh, if we can do that, what we would expect is to be able to take mice that are already in middle age and maybe double or treble their remaining lifespan. So, you know, take that remaining lifespan up from one year when the mouse is two years old out to maybe three years. Um, now, the reason we're so focused on that is twofold. Number one, of course, from a purely biological perspective, from a technological perspective, it is a proof of concept. It shows that we have not actually overlooked some key um, type of damage that makes the mice die on schedule, whatever, even though we've done everything. But the other thing it is, is PR. It shows the world (laughs) that this is for real. And we believe, I've always believed, that that kind of dramatic result is what's going to be necessary to overcome this thing that I've always called the pro-aging trance, this irrational clinging to questions like whether there are ethical ambiguities about doing anything about aging and so on. When you get the mouse to live three times its normal lifespan, and you can do it three or four times, you know, like, like, like this, this is this is a, a cracked code. We know how to do this. That's when the discu- the discussion about compression and morbidity can stop. Uh, like, we, we can just stop saying like, like, wouldn't you like to be thirty when you're eighty? And we can start saying, wouldn't you like to be thirty like when you're one hundred and eighty? And like, 
it, it, the conversation will change, but you have to crack that first. And okay, what's it going to take in the next five to 10 years in terms of funding, in mm-hmm. terms of, of regulatory change? Like, like, what do you need to do this? Okay, so you can certainly forget about regulatory change because we're only talking about mice. And, you know, the FDA doesn't regulate what, mice, what, what can be done on mice. Not uh, yet. Give them time. <laughs> well, you may be right. Um, but what else do we need? Yeah, we definitely need more money. At the moment, Sense Research Foundation is struggling along on a budget of only 4 or $5 million per year, which is absolutely yeah. pitiful. It is so insane that uh, as a leading organization working on rejuvenation biotechnology, we find it so difficult to pull in funds. There are, you know, there are explanations for that in terms of short-termism of people, in terms of the fact that there's this high-risk, high-reward research, which is always hard to fund through peer review and so on. But the fact is, it's a tragedy. And we need to fix it, and we need to fix it fast. If we don't fix it fast, then those six or eight years that I just mentioned could easily be 15 years. So we could be set back by a decade in terms of how soon we actually start saving lives. And that's, you know, 10 years is half a billion lives that we'd be talking about because you've got more than 100,000 people every day dying of aging one way or another, right? That's the most astronomical amount of suffering. So yes, we definitely need, I think we could probably speed up the research by a factor of two or three if we had, let's say, 10 times more money, just one more digit on the, on the end of our budget. And that is not very much to us. That, you know, $40, $50 million a year, that is a tiny fraction still of the medical research budget of the USA, for example. Did the ice bucket challenge piss you off? I think that there is, there is room for every kind of promotion of fundraising for this work. I don't care how the money is gained. So up to a point, I don't really care where it comes from. I just <laughs> want the money to be spent on the research. Well, that, the, the reason I, I'm asking that is, is not just because it, it was kind of a, a funny thing, but it raised an enormous amount of money for, uh, for ALS, which is a, a really important neurodegenerative disease that, that's tied back to mitochondrial function. In fact, it's tied back to probably, what, four or five of the seven things that you talk about? Most of the complex diseases that we know of are indeed tied back to two or three at least of those things. Exactly. But all the money went to this disease instead of the causes of these diseases. And, and that has to be frustrating at some level, isn't it? It's kind of frustrating, yes. <laughs> okay. I mean, of course, it depends. The problem is not necessarily that the research is focused on a particular disease. The problem is that when the money comes in, the way that it's distributed, the particular research directions that it tends to be um, directed at, there the problem happens because the the overwhelming majority of research that gets funded is focused on the symptoms, not on the earlier stages, the damage that's accumulating that is causing the symptoms, and that's why it's not going to work. I hope that being on Bulletproof Radio this time gets a, a few people with, uh, with, with nice checkbooks to, to write some relatively small checks uh, to the Sens Research Foundation. It, it, it's a worthwhile cause. I, I'm going back to my favorite ice bucket challenge video, which was uh, Patrick Stewart, uh, Captain Picard. Uh, and he said, ah, oh, here's my ice bucket challenge. And he, he has an ice bucket and he takes two ice cubes out puts them in a glass of whiskey, and then writes a check. <laughs> like, done. <laughs> Handled like a boss, right? So for, for people listening who are interested in, in this kind of stuff, and there's a lot of transhumanists, a lot of people who are just deeply interested in controlling their biology, and that includes 
feeling amazing when you're old. In fact, feeling so amazing you don't know you're old and neither does anyone else. Like that's the win. That's the win. And when, uh, so, so for that, if, if you're one of those people and you're looking for your charitable donation around tax time, or whatever else, like think about, uh, I would say, think about what Aubrey's working on with the Sense Foundation. It, it's, it's cool. And at the moment, we actually have a, 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 a challenge going on that was just oh, cool. launched yesterday. Um, I didn't so even know. Yeah, if you go to sense.org right now, you'll see it. It's called Control Alt Delete. It's um, it's all about a particular. It's all about part of our anti-cancer approach that I was discussing earlier. Okay, well, uh, approaching cancer is is an awesome idea because there was a lot of funding for that and a lot of public support for it. So, uh, if you can solve some parts of cancer at the same time, many other parts of aging, it's a double win, and everyone's everyone's good there. Well, Aubrey, we're coming up on the end of the interview, but I have a question for you that I ask every guest on the show. And if someone came to you tomorrow and said, look, Aubrey, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, what are the three most important pieces of advice you have for me? What would you say? Well, okay, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to answer a different question. I'm going to okay. answer a question that says, why am I good at what I do? Um, because I'm afraid the answer is not really something that people can acquire on purpose, at least not quickly. I think that why I'm good at what I do is a combination of charisma and determination and confidence. And, of course, it helps to be smart, but I think that <laughs> lots of people can be very smart and still get very little done in their lives and make very little difference. Uh, I actually I, I gave a talk. I've, I, I occasionally give a talk um, on this kind of theme called how to be a successful heretic. Uh, and that actually has more than three it has 10 different pieces of advice. <laughs> All right. I will link to that in here. And the other thing you didn't say though, is, is you're relatively fearless. Like I, I I've, I, I've hung out with you personally enough times. Like you just, you just don't give into that, that stuff. You, you, you're just willing to say, I just don't care about that. And I'm not going to do that. You, you live your personal life in a way that's, that's just without fear and, and just full of love and, and, and passion for what you do. And I think that's got to be a part, of your, a part of your success formula. I would say that it's another symptom of who I am rather than um... <laughs> a symptom. I love it. All right. I, 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 could, I could see that. Well, Aubrey, it is, as always, it's a pleasure to chat with you. It's an honor to have you on Bulletproof Radio. Have an awesome day. And for everyone listening, I'm not kidding. Uh, and neither is Aubrey about what's possible with, with, with anti-aging. And uh, if, if you're in the mood to make a donation, man, think about this. This is seriously one of the biggest things that we as a species can be working on. Thanks, Aubrey. Thank you. Get tons more original info to make it easier to kick more ass at life when you sign up with a free newsletter at bulletproofexec.com. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services.
Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.